Thank you, Makeda, for your lovely introduction and for the uh, that lovely uh, meditative pause. And welcome, everybody. Thank you all for coming. Uh, you know, this this topic is um, obviously of some relevance to us at the end of uh, a difficult year and the beginning of another year that promises to have its its challenges. And uh, it's interesting, you know, mindfulness practices evolved to work with challenging circumstances. And they evolved in a time in which life was far less controllable than we tend to see it as being today. You know, we're all rather shocked by the pandemic. Like, look at how life has been unended by a, um, a development in the natural world. But of course, historically, humans' lives were constantly being upended by things happening in the uh, in the natural world. And in fact, a you know the monarchs of old would have given you know all of their jewels for an antibiotic, you know, just a way to work with uh, a conventional bacterial infection, or for that matter, access to a modern supermarket. So these you know these practices really evolved to help us with these kinds of difficulties. And uh, I'm just curious if, if we can, um, if people wouldn't mind uh, putting on their, uh, their cameras, uh, many of you have your cameras on. Uh, and just for a show of hands, um, I assume all of you have a mindfulness practice of some sort. And how many of you took up mindfulness practice when you were in an upswing, when you had just you know won the lottery, gotten a promotion or fallen in love? Yeah, so one person did, Lars did, Arlene did, a few did, but by and large, right, we take up these practices when we're in a downswing, right? When there's some kind of difficulty going on in our lives and we're feeling, you know, uh-oh, I need a coping strategy for this. And luckily, these practices can be such a coping strategy. Um, we're not gonna be able to control adversity. Life has its ups and downs. We have good and bad fortune. What they say in Buddhist traditions, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows are simply built into the experience of being a human. However, how we respond to those ups and downs, well, there we have a good deal of wiggle room. And I'd suggest that mindfulness practices can really help us in this response. Now, many of us, when we take up these practices, we have a number of fantasies. We have the fantasy that we're gonna to become totally Zen, right? That instead of having waves of anxiety, instead of having waves of despair, instead of having waves of anger, we're gonna be cooled out, living in the present moment, <clears throat> you know, taking everything in stride. You may have noticed that that is not exactly what happens from doing these practices. Rather, what happens from doing these practices, even though they do help us to develop some equanimity, is they don't stop the waves of life at all. They give us some tools for surfing. They give us some capacity to be able to ride these waves. And in fact, there is a little bit of a distinction here. In if we look at you know some of the origins of Buddhist of mindfulness practices in Buddhist traditions, you have the the sort of southern. Uh, Buddhist Vipassana traditions that are a little bit more about this idea of uh, somehow we're going to weed out what they call greed, hatred, and delusion, basically our human passions. Whereas you get what comes out of Tibetan traditions and Zen traditions, which is a little bit more, no, this is about making friends with those passions, finding some way to be fully human, go through all of our different emotions, but somehow ride those waves with more skill. And um, I, there's an interesting um, little uh, empirical study that was done by a couple of good friends of mine who they're a couple and they sat a four year silent mindfulness retreat. And yeah, that wasn't a 
you heard that correctly, a four-year silent retreat. So a little bit longer than, you know, the typical 10-day um, <clears throat> retreat. And um, those of us who were their friends, uh, they're both psychotherapists, by the way, were eagerly awaiting the results. Like, this is our big experiment. What's going to happen to Bill and Susan after four years? And um, we had something of a consensus once we saw them emerge. Um, Bill was still Bill and Susan was still Susan, but they were a bit lighter. And digging in a little bit more deeply, and I've had you know, the chance to co-teach with them on a number of occasions, they go through all the same emotions that they ever went through before doing their retreat, only they don't get stuck in them. They don't have as long a tail to the emotion. So yes, they feel rage. Yes, they feel longings. Yes, they feel fear but they don't seem to get stuck in it. It doesn't have such a long tail. And this begins to give us some insight into how mindfulness practices may be useful for, um, for resilience, because they're not gonna be about blocking out or even muting feeling. They're gonna be about feeling feelings more vividly, but somehow coming to a relationship to feelings in which we don't get stuck in them. And it's very interesting because think about any emotion that you have difficulty with, whether it be sadness or anger or fear. If you're anything like me, I have, when I have difficulty with these emotions, it's not feeling the emotion in this moment here and now, which is problematic for me. It's the fantasy that I'm going to be stuck in it. It's the fantasy that I'm gonna stay anxious. I'm gonna stay sad or depressed. I'm gonna stay angry. And then I imagine that would be intolerable. And guess what? One of the things that we discover from mindfulness practice is impermanence. We discover that everything is fluid and changing. It's just, we get caught in narratives that make us imagine that there's more consistency and more permanence that make us imagine. Um, <clears throat> so the idea here is that when we're in a very difficult affect state, it's the fantasy that it's going to last forever, which is what is most problematic for us. Um, we can handle fear, we can handle sadness, we can handle anger if we know that it's impermanent, as all things are impermanent, but we forget it. We get caught in our narratives about this. And there's a famous Zen teaching story about the fruits of mindfulness about this. And it's a difficult story. It's, it's a story about this really sadistic general, this marauding general who had come to town in medieval Japan. And he and his troops were doing horrible things. They were raping women. They were killing the able-bodied boys and men. They were destroying the crops. They were burning buildings. And this general really wanted to vanquish the town folk. And he got it that they revered their Zen master. So he thought, I'll go after the guy. And what he did was he rode his horse up the hillside and rode his horse right into the main hall of the Zen temple. And there sitting on his afu was this little old man, the Zen master. And uh, I will use my uh, <clears throat> meditation tools as a prop. Uh, the general raised his bloody sword over the head of the Zen master who's sitting there on the fl floor. And he said, don't you realize I can run you through with the sword without blinking an eye? And the Zen master looked up and he said, yes, and I, sir, can be run through with a sword without blinking an eye. And it said that at that moment, the general became disoriented and he left town. Now, I don't think the point is that this is a useful military strategy. I think the point of the story is that there's something about these practices that actually allow us to be run through with a sword without blinking an eye. And if we can understand that, 
it might be a really useful pathway for using those practices for our own resilience for assaults that are hopefully somewhat less grave than being run through with a sword. Uh, so how might this work? Well, what is it that allows us to be resilient? We know that even us being the same person over time on one day can be much more resilient than another. Let me give you an example. So imagine or remember a time when you've had a bad cold. And let's say you've been, um, you know, you haven't been exercising, you haven't been meditating much because you feel lousy. And uh, actually you've been self-medicating with junk food and staying up too late watching TV because who wants to go to bed with the stuff he knows it's uncomfortable. And you do it again, you stay up too late, you finally drift to sleep, the morning comes around and bah! you're woken up by the buzzer, you know, by your, your alarm. And you look out the window and it's, uh, you know, two degrees Fahrenheit, I'm sorry, two degrees Celsius, you know, 33 degrees Fahrenheit, and it's raining. And you feel lousy and you drag yourself into the kitchen. And let's say you live with another person and you have one of those five minute interactions with a loved one that can ruin your whole day. You know how they go. You say something, they say something in return. You're irritated, you escalate a little bit, they escalate the day shot. And whatever your line of work, you look at your appointment book and you're seeing many too many people, whether it's clients or customers or um, uh, consultants, whatever it is. And it's with this as a backdrop that you kind of drag yourself into your car and let's say you drive to work and you're driving to work and on the way you start to hear, it's rather subtle at first, thump, 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 and then it gets stronger. And then you actually feel it in your body and you realize you've got a flat and you just have this overwhelmed sense of, I can't handle this, not today, I just can't handle it. Even if you haven't had that exact day, you kind of know the feeling I'm talking about? Okay, now I want you to imagine a wholly different day. You've been physically healthy, you've been working out, you've been meditating regularly, you've been eating a healthy diet, you've tended to go to bed on time, and in fact, before dead, you before bed, before dead, that's an interesting slip, but before bed, you've been reading either inspirational or educational material. And you do it again, you drift off peacefully to sleep, you sleep deeply, you wake up before your alarm, you look out the window and the sun is shining, it's 68 degrees Fahrenheit, 20 something degrees Celsius. And let's say you live with another person and you have one of those five minute interactions that makes you so glad to have connection in your life, so glad to be part of the larger human family. And you look at your appointment book today and you know it's like a Goldilocks day for whatever your profession is. Not so many people that you're gonna be exhausted, not few that you're gonna be in trouble for productivity or you're gonna starve. And when you look at the names of the people who you're gonna to see today, you realize that a lot of them, if you weren't working with them professionally, you'd like to have them as your close personal friends. And it's with this as a backdrop that you get into your car you start driving to work mindfully. You're looking at the clouds, the trees, the whole thing. You're at a red light and suddenly, bam, you're hit from behind. And you know, you're startled, but a moment's reflection, you realize that, well, I'm okay. And you pull your car over to the side and the other driver does the same. And because of some wonderful coincidence, it turns out that the other driver is actually not character disordered. They're a decent human being and they say, I'm so sorry, I wasn't paying attention. Are you all right? And you have a sense that, okay, you know, it's gonna cost some money, there'll be paperwork, but the world's okay, nobody got hurt, thank God, it's really gonna be okay. 
So let's contrast these two days, right? On the first day, the intensity of the challenge that was facing you was, you know, it was something somewhat moderate. It was a flat tire on a cold, rainy day, but your capacity to bear adversity was quite low. So you really were overwhelmed. On the second day, the intensity of the challenge was a great deal higher, right? It was really, you know, an automobile accident, but your capacity to bear challenges was higher still. So you were fine. This magic sauce, this ability to be able to be with adversity and not be overwhelmed by it, this is the magic, the human capacity that mindfulness practice can help us to develop. Now, some of the factors that, add, that go into this are not really under our control. Our genetic proclivity. If we have genes that predispose us toward a lot of anxiety or depression, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, we'll get overwhelmed more easily. Our upbringing, if we had, you know, basically a loving and reasonably predictable environment growing up, we're gonna have more of a sense of it's okay, sweetheart, internalized inside of ourselves, and that's going to make it easier. Being physically safe, having enough to eat, being physically healthy, all of these things support it. But there's something else that can support it, and that involves our attitude toward experience. And this is something that we can learn, and mindfulness practice actually can teach us the core attitudes toward experience that lead to resilience. So what are these? Let me tell you another story that will illustrate this. So there's a, um, there's a diagnostic manual that, um, that we folks in the uh, mental health professions use, and it's actually used worldwide. Uh, it's called the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. And it's basically a code book for labeling different forms of psychological distress. And every few years, they, they rewrite the book and, and modernize it based on current research. And in the last iteration, it was a movement from the DSM-4 to the DSM-5. And among the experts and the researchers doing this work, they had quite a number of arguments. And one of the arguments was between two groups that were described to me as the lumpers and the splitters. The splitters were people who thought, you know, the DSM-4 still didn't have sufficient diagnostic categories to describe human emotional distress. We needed more categories because we were inadvertently lumping apples and oranges together. And if we could develop more categories, well, then we would be able to um, develop uh, pharmaceuticals to more directly address people's issues or maybe um, therapies, psych psychosocial interventions. The lumpers, on the other hand, would hear this, and the lumpers were usually practicing clinicians who actually saw real patients, would usually hear this and they'd kind of roll their eyes and they'd say, you know, to tell you the truth, I rarely saw a patient or a client with a single DSM-4 diagnosis. Almost everybody had a little bit of this, some of that, a bit of a third thing. And to be perfectly honest, the diagnosis changed from week to week. I don't think more categories is gonna help us out much. The splitters, in, in fact, said the lumpers, I'm afraid if we get caught up in categories, we're gonna, we're gonna miss the forest for the trees. The splitters at that point said, what forest? And the lumpers said, well, you're gonna miss, you're gonna miss the basic principles behind human psychological suffering. And if we could identify these principles, we'd be able to help such a wide swath of people. The splitters would say, what? basic principles. These are different medical disorders. This is like, what's the, guy, what's the commonality between syphilis and a broken leg? Yeah, they're both uncomfortable. They're both perhaps disabling, but isn't it best to describe them as different things and treat them differently? But what the lumpers would say is actually no. When it comes to human psychological distress, there are universals. 
And among those universals, probably the most potent is what we call emotional or experiential avoidance. It's our fundamental, deeply hardwired impulse to try to avoid pain, to try to push painful experience out of our awareness and try to hold on to pleasant experience. And it doesn't take much experience as a mindfulness practitioner to notice that, oh, all those painful experiences of the day, the week, my lifetime that I've pushed out of awareness start to bubble up and come into my awareness when I'm sitting and trying to follow my breath. And we also notice that every time we push something out of awareness, what we resist persists. So the harder that we push things out of awareness, the more they press for expression. As one of my patients eloquently put it, when we bury feelings, we bury them alive. They keep trying to come back from the grave and they keep, they keep bothering us. So what do we do about this? And, and you can see this in different disorders. Uh, um, let's just take one example. Um, again, let's do this with a physical show of hands. Uh, how many of you, at least from time to time, drink alcoholic beverages? Many of you do. Okay, excellent. Out of those of you who drink alcoholic beverages, at least from time to time, how many of you do it exclusively only for the taste? Usually a few, few hands come up. You're probably either in Spain or Northern California or somewhere like that. I know there are people who are connoisseurs of, of alcohol, but you know, frankly, what we have is an extremely flavorsome drug delivery system here, right? And we tend to use alcohol because we want to change one state into another. You know, we've had a hard day at work and muscular skeletally, we look something like this at the end of the day, and we think it might not be a bad thing to have a glass of wine. Or we're going to go to a party and there are going to be people there who we don't know, perhaps worse people there who we do know. And we think, you know, it would be nice to start with a drink, right? We want to change a state of tension to a state of non-tension. And doing this from time to time in moderation, no harm, no foul. But we know people who do it a lot get stuck in substance use disorders and it's a real problem. Or just to give you one other example, anxiety. If I get anxious before public speaking or doing a Zoom call with people from all over the world, but I do it anyway, or I get anxious before flying in airplanes pre-COVID, but did it anyway, I'm just a nervous guy. I happen to be a nervous guy, so I know about this. But if I start avoiding doing those things in order not to feel anxious, well, then I'm on my way to an anxiety disorder because then my whole life is going to constrict. It's going to get restricted based on this. And we could actually go through all of the disorders that, that, that afflict us psychologically, and they all have this component in it. They all have this component of contracting, pushing away, and trying not to feel something painful. And while in the very short run, it works, it feels better, in the long run, it leaves us cut off from our experience, unable to be fully present. You know, Wilhelm Reich, who was the, um, uh, one of Freud's followers, those of you who, are, who might be uh, psychotherapists or know this world, uh, he was a father to all the body-oriented therapies, things like bioenergetics and rolfing and the like. And um, Reich used to say, you know, he was Freudian, so there was a little bit of an emphasis on sex. He said, if a person could fully experience an orgasm, that would be proof that they were free from psychoneuroses. I think he was correct, but he's a little narrow. If a person could fully experience a cup of tea, it would mean you were free from neurosis. Because to be fully present in any moment means not to be distracted by unintegrated, difficult emotions that are pressing for, exp for expression. 
It means that we've allowed ourselves to fully feel all of our life experience so that we're not now having to tense up, constrict and push away. We can really be with the cup of tea. And you know this if you're a mindfulness practitioner that you know, the thing that makes meditation difficult is thoughts and feelings coming up that are constantly seeking expression, constantly trying to get our, our attention and many of them are, are upsetting. So this first basic principle, experiential approach rather than experiential avoidance is going to be a touchstone for developing resilience. And mindfulness practice teaches us how to do that, right? It's whatever arises in the body, whatever arises in the mind, simply turning our attention to it and being with it. And there's a, um, uh, an aspect of how mindfulness practice helps with this, which is, which is particularly useful. Um, anybody other than me, when you sit for a long period of time, get aches or pains in your body, like soreness in your bottom or your leg hurts or your neck, right? Okay. Most of us have this experience. And most of us, if we've been mindfulness practitioners for, um, for more than a little while, have started experimenting with what happens if I simply turn my attention to the physical discomfort? What happens if I open to this moment-to-moment -moment discomfort and simply be with it, or even allow the physical discomfort to be the object of our, our awareness, to shift, let's say, from the breath to the physical discomfort. And what do we find? Initially, it amplifies the experience, right? It intensifies it because we're paying attention. But after a while, sometimes we notice that it changes on its own. This principle, that physical pain can change on its own, starts to become a life lesson. Because as it turns out, physical pain and psychological pain are in many ways the same thing. Let's do a little exercise together just to, uh, to illustrate how this works. So close your eyes for, for a moment and join me in this. And take a breath or two. And allow yourself to generate a little bit of sadness. Not the saddest thing ever, but just let yourself feel a little bit of sadness. Can you notice the way that sadness is actually a bodily sensation? And if you wouldn't mind, just put your hand over the part of your body where you feel the sadness most vividly. Just a kind of soothing touch, just to notice the physical sensation of sadness. And now let's generate a little bit of fear. Again, not the scariest thing ever, but just something that's kind of scary. And feel that in the body and place your hand over where you feel the fear. And notice the physical sensation of fear. And next generate a little bit of anger or annoyance. If you're a nice spiritual person who practices mindfulness and never gets annoyed, just think of members of the other political party and how you feel toward them. That'll do it. And put your hand over where you feel anger or annoyance, where that is in the body. Very good, okay, thank you. And you can open your eyes again. Do you notice that those three, what we might call afflictive emotions, emotions that are often difficult for us, they all have a very clear physical signature, right? You can really feel them in the body. Well, one of the ways we can use mindfulness practice is simply when these difficult emotions come up, we can turn our attention to that emotion, be with it, feel it, 
and ride it out the same way we would any other physical discomfort. And this shift from resisting emotions to being with them as somatic events and noticing that they're time limited gives us tremendous capacity to be like the Zen master. Because when we imagine things going wrong, when we imagine the things we fear or resist in life, it's almost always some feeling is going to arise and we're afraid we won't be able to tolerate that feeling. And you can think about this for a moment. So take a moment right now to think of something that you worry about or you fear. Again, not the worst thing ever, but just identify it. And if that were to come to pass, what would be difficult about it? The likelihood is there would be a painful feeling. And the thought is, I don't want to have that painful feeling. So if we can build in this capacity to be run through with the sword, to feel these feelings when they come up, not only are we going to be able to enjoy our cup of tea or enjoy joy, but we'll also feel like we're equipped to be able to work with it when the painful emotion arises. Now, there's another component to this, which is that as humans, feelings don't exist in isolation. They're almost always accompanied by thoughts. And this makes a lot of sense if you look at our evolutionary history. Um, you know, if you look back at our ancestors on the African savanna, you know, four, four and a half million years ago, they weren't terribly well equipped. They were like a meter high. They had kind of some fur. Their teeth and claws weren't very ferocious. They weren't very fast. Their hearing and sight was okay, but nothing to write home about. And yet they survived. And we know they survived because we have their DNA. And what did they have to survive? Well, they had a fight or flight system so they could activate a response. They were social critters so they could cooperate with one another. They had an opposable thumb so they could pick something up. That was gonna be very helpful when they evolved into homo habilis, you know, the tool making human. Um, but the main thing they had that really set them aside from the other critters back then was they had this capacity to think, to imagine the future, analyze the past and strategize for survival. And this thinking capacity, while marvelously, marvelously useful for survival and even allows us to develop Zoom and the internet. So it's a great thing. However, it can cause us a remarkable amount of psychological distress. Take a moment right now, again, close your eyes for one second and think of something that bothers you. And ask yourself the question, here and now, if it weren't for the thought of the thing, would I be having trouble? Would it be okay? And the likelihood is here and now sitting on the Zoom call, you're okay. It's the thought, and you may open your eyes again, thank you. It's the thought that this is going to occur in the future or the thought, even if you're in physical discomfort right now, it's the thought that the physical discomfort is going to endure for a long time. That's what's disturbing. So this capacity for thinking, so good for survival, causes a lot of grief. And one of the reasons it causes a tremendous amount of grief is cognitive scientists tell us that our human thinking capacity is subject to what's called the negativity bias. This is what my, my, my pal Rick Hansen, who likes to uh, talk about this a lot, describes it as being uh, the mind being like Velcro for bad experiences and Teflon for good ones. Bad experiences come, the mind seizes on them and sticks to them. It sticks to them. Good experiences, whoosh, slides right off the pan. 
And this is because humans evolved, we could have made one of two types of errors in the African savanna, which roughly correspond to what we call type one and type two errors in modern psychological research. A type one error would be to look at some ambiguous situation, let's say it's a base shape behind some bushes and go, oh my God, it's a lion, when it was really just a beige rock, a false positive. A type two error would be to look at the same ambiguous circumstance and say, oh, it's probably a beige rock when it's really a lion, right? A false negative. Now, our ancestors could survive thousands of false positives, thousands of type one errors and still live to, say, to, to tell the, you know, the story. One type two error, one false negative, that's the end of your DNA line. So we might imagine that there were happy hominids hanging around, holding hands, singing kumbaya, remembering dynamite sexual encounters and luscious pieces of fruit back in the old days. However, they were not our ancestors. Why? Because statistically they died before they got to reproduce. Our ancestors were the ones walking around the savannah going, oh no, it could be a lion. Looks like another poisonous snake. That plant with spines, not that again. Uh-oh, a cliff. Those were our ancestors. So what we find when we notice the working of our cognitive apparatus, when we sit in mindfulness practice and see what happens is a lot of painful stuff comes up. An awful lot of worries show up, an awful lot of memories of bad things that have happened show up, worries for us, for our loved ones, for the state of the planet. What if the virus mutates? I could go on. The, these things are constantly, constantly filling our minds. So it would be enormously useful if we had a technique or a practice that allowed us to not take our thoughts so seriously, that allowed us to see that thoughts come and go, thoughts are very much based on all sorts of biases. There are, um, there are two main findings from cognitive science of the last 20 years. Uh, one of them is we are hopelessly irrational as beings. You know, we are biased, we are prejudiced. Again, just think of people in the other, um, uh, with a different political persuasion. Look at how their feelings are completely driven by emotion. We can see it clear as a bell, right? The other main finding is we all experience ourselves as being rational actors. It's other people whose cognitions are shaped by emotion. We see facts in reality, right? And because, because of this, we tend to believe in our thoughts and make ourselves quite miserable and panic when the world is unstable, when it's different than, than we've expected it to be. So the other great gift of mindfulness practices in terms of supporting resilience is every time we take our attention and we bring it out of the thought stream and come back to a sensory object in the present, whether it be the breath or sounds or a bell or even words in the form of a mantra, every time we do that, we gain a little bit of perspective on thought. We get to see, oh, thoughts arise and pass. They really are like clouds in the sky. They really do not have any substance to them. They are passing mental contents. And the more we can see this and the more we can see how they're flavored and colored by our mood of the moment, because when we're depressed, we have negative thoughts. When we're happy, we have positive thoughts. The more we can see this, the less we identify with them, the less we take them seriously. And that is going to become a tremendous fountain for resilience. Um, so um, maybe I'll offer a few more and then, then open it for, uh, for uh, discussion because mindfulness practices work um, in, in really so many different ways. Uh, for us here. Um, as we allow thoughts to come and go, 
And as we allow ourselves to really feel feelings, including the painful ones, and stay with how they're rooted in the body, we get less caught in narratives. Let me explain this a little bit. Um, let's say my friend has um, done me dirty. I feel like I've been extraordinarily generous to him over a long period of time, and he has done something very self-centered, and I am angry. And I have the thought, I can't believe you did that to me after all I've done for you. And every time I have that thought, I have the psychophysiological arousal of anger, right? I, I feel myself tensing up, I feel my heart racing and the like. And when my body is in that state, that actually in turn creates more angry thoughts, more thoughts about what a jerk he is and that kind of thing. And this kind of recursive loop, you know, you were bad, I was good, emotion and more of those thoughts, this can go on for a few minutes, for a few hours, for a few days, for several decades. We know that we know how this works, right? Now, if I'm approaching this through mindfulness practice, it's gonna be a somewhat different experience. I'm going to notice the thought arising. I'm gonna notice the physical sensations of anger in the body. I'm gonna stay with and breathe with these physical sensations there might be images like images of decapitating the former friend dancing through the mind. All sorts of things may happen, but I'm gonna be watching this and being with it as a flow of moment to moment experience. I'm not gonna be staying stuck in the narrative and believing in the narrative. Anybody wanna take a guess about, about how long an emotion lasts if it's not reinforced by a, a narrative thought? Anybody wanna just take a guess? Let's do it in chat. Uh, just guess for how long might an emotion last if not reinforced by a narrative thought. 30 seconds to two minutes, 15, 90 seconds, one second, 80 seconds, nine seconds, a few seconds, split second. Okay, we, we have a range. Most of you, most of you are, are in the right ballpark of saying not terribly long. The apparent answer is about 90 seconds. How might we define, how might you study this? This is not easy to set up a, a research study for this. This actually comes from Jean Bolte-Taylor, who's a, a, neuros a neuropsychologist who had a left hemispheric stroke that basically wiped out her ability for linear narrative thought for a period of time. And she said during that period of time, she experienced emotions, but they only lasted for about 90 seconds because they didn't get reinforced by a narrative about it. So there's body arousal, it takes about 90 seconds for the body to return to baseline after this happens. And that's fascinating. If we can loop back to my friends, Bill and Susan with their four year retreat, this is what shortens the tail of the emotion that we get it, that it's transient. We have the thought, we have the feeling, we stay with and we're with the feeling, but then it can pass and we don't keep reinforcing it with the, um, with the narrative loops. Um, there are other aspects of mindfulness practice that can also uh, very much be of assistance to us here. Um, one of them is how mindfulness practices help us to make safe social connections. We humans have been huddling together, originally in caves, now on Zoom, for a very long period of time. And because when we're safely with other human beings, it helps us through difficult times. Um, a uh, a friend of mine is, he's interesting. He's a, uh, uh, you know, a, um, a Harvard psychiatrist, a psychoanalyst, a Zen priest, and the director of the longest running longitudinal research study on human well-being, what's called the Harvard Study of Adult Development, which starting in 1938, they collected 700 odd 
uh, men, half of whom were Harvard undergrads. It was, it was not a co-ed institution back then. And half were poor kids living in the city. And they've been following them ever since, ever since 1938. And they study everything about them. Nowadays, they study their families, their kids. They study lipid levels. They study heart rate. They study uh, everything that can be measured medically. And they study psychosocial functioning in a lot of ways. And Bob would tell you that the jury is now in. We now know what the most important variable is, both for a lifelong physical health as well as psychological well-being. And it's the quality of our relationships. It's the degree to which we feel safely connected to other people. We are a social species, and we neglect that at our peril. Now, mindfulness practices help us to connect to one another. How might they do that? You might think, well, wait a minute, isn't mindfulness about sitting alone in a cave? Well, you know, yes, we may take some time away from others in order to practice, but what we're practicing doing is opening our hearts, opening our minds to the full range of human emotional experience. And if we can develop this courage to be able to be run through with the sword without blinking an eye, to be able to open to the full flow of our emotional experience, to surf the waves of life rather than try to flat them, flatten them out and to not believe so much in our thoughts, it's gonna help us get along with other people. Because you may have noticed that what goes wrong in getting along with other people is hurting each other's feelings and getting caught in thoughts about one another, right? It's our endless judgments about you're a jerk, you shouldn't have done that, that was unfair, et cetera, et cetera, that locks us into these feeling states. And it's the difficulty bearing the feeling. I can't stand the shame I feel when, typical example, when my wife catches me at having done some harebrained self-centered thing instead of being considerate and she points it out to me, I can't stand the shame. So I get angry in my response because I don't wanna be, I can't tolerate the, the pain of the shame. Well, if I can practice mindfulness a little bit more, I can tolerate the pain of the shame and I can say, oh, sweetheart, I'm so sorry. You know, I did it again. I know I said I wouldn't do it, but I've done it. And we, you know, we can talk about it, right? And in so many circumstances, if we can get away from the instinctive, defensive, I'm right, you're wrong kind of posture, we can get along with one another. And when we can get along with one another, we can benefit from that safe social support, which is so important, so important for our ongoing resilience.